All right, we are in Genesis chapter 18 today. For a few moments before TC comes to lead us in communion, which we will be taking. So even now, start preparing your heart to receive the Lord's Supper as we look at the Word a little bit together. In Genesis 18, we've got a couple of stories. We're looking at the first story this morning. It's uh, verse 1 through 15. Like we said, it's really a story about Jesus and Sarah. Jesus and Sarah. Now, Sarah has been a part of the story for some time. She's been a part of the, the saga that is Abraham's life. And she's mentioned often, as we've talked about Abram turning into Abraham, even Sarai, her name was changed to Sarah. So she's definitely been mentioned. But this is a story that sort of points to her as a main character for a moment, it really highlights her for a second. And it highlights the problems and the predicaments that she has faced, and it highlights her cynicism. It shows us that she has some cynical thinking. Now, it's understandable. We'll talk about that in a minute. It makes sense. It's a human experience that we have, uh, but it's a good chance for us to look at our cynicism this morning and reflect on our cynical nature, our cynical thinking. Perhaps you came to church cynically this morning. Perhaps you have something, uh, some thoughts that are cynical in your head as you sit and listen. Um, I'm about to hopefully give us some hope in the midst of our cynicism. And the scriptures here will give us some hope for the cynics among us. And if you're here and you're like, yeah, right, right, I think this message might be for you because <laughs> you might be a little cynical. And if you've come, I want you to know, if you've come cynically this morning, we love you. We care about you. You are welcome here. Your cynicism is welcome here. Just like Sarah's cynicism was welcome before the Lord, though he did correct it, he still blessed her and used her and gave her great grace. And the Lord will still bless you and use you and give you great grace, even though you're a little cynical this morning. So we got a lot to learn from Sarah. We got a lot to learn from Jesus. We got a lot to learn from Genesis this morning, 18, 1 through 15. And to get to the, some of that, we first got to go through the story. To get to the sermon, you got to go through the story. And here's what the Bible says in Genesis 18, looking at verse 1. We'll just kind of go through the first eight verses. I'll explain a little bit along the way. It says, The Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, in the plains of Mamre. And he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. So some of you might like this. In that culture, you worked in the morning and in the early evening. So if you were a night owl, you would thrive back in memory. In the heat of the day, you took a siesta. Sounds nice, doesn't it? I think we should take this up as a culture in South Carolina in July because, yeah, I mean, it's just the obvious. And so he's, Abram, is in his siesta mode. He's not at work. He's in the hammock, as it were. And the Lord's showing up to him in the midst of this siesta. And what form does the Lord take? It says, verse 2, he lift up his eyes and he looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And I'll go ahead and cut to the chase. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus and two angels. That's who this is. We learn that as we go through 18, 19, and 20, the saga and the story, the epic, if you will, of Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole episode. You're going to learn this as time goes on, but I'll give it to you now just up front. We believe that this is the pre-incarnate Son of God. This is a Christophany, so Jesus before he's Jesus, the God-man, and two of his messengers, his angels, and Abraham's about to get a visit from them, and he's about to entertain them like the Bible talks 
talks about in the book of Hebrews. It says you should always show hospitality to strangers because by doing so, you might actually be entertaining strangers uh, that are angels and you're unaware of it. And so I don't know if how aware Abraham is in this moment, but he is definitely doing uh, the, the very thing Hebrews tells us to do because he begins to be very hospitable towards them. It says this in verse two, when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and he bowed himself to the ground and he said, my Lord, now if I have found favor in your sight, don't pass by too quickly, right? I pray thee from thy servant. He's gonna serve God. Now, like I said, I don't know if Abraham knows this is God. I don't know if he knows it's, it's the pre-incarnate Christ, the second member of the Trinity, but he at least knows to some degree, this tips us off, that this is, these are guys at least from God. And he wants to hear from God. So if you want to hear from God, you serve God. Abraham knows that, and that's what he is doing. And so he says, let a little water, I pray you be fetched. Wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree, and I will fetch a morsel of bread, and I will comfort your hearts. And after that, you guys can pass on. They said, go, do as thou hast said. So Abraham gets busy for God, gets busy for the Lord serving him because he hopes to hear from him. And Abram hastened to the tent, said, Sarah, make some biscuits, right? Make ready qu quickly, three measures of fine meal. Knead it, make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran to the herd and he fetched a calf and he gave it to a young man who hastened to dress it. He took butter and milk and, and the calf which he had dressed and he set it before them and he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. So Abraham prepares lunch. Isn't this getting you guys kind of hungry, right? Like, man, it sounds like those rolls at Texas Roadhouse. Right? Those things are awesome. I go just for the rolls, like butter, milk, bread, a calf, all for me, the fatted calf. Let's do this thing. Right? And he sets down this lunch before the Lord and his two angels, and they begin to eat together. And the reason Abraham has gone so far out for these people that in one sense are total strangers, and in another sense he knows must be the Lord or from the Lord, is because he's eager to hear their word. Several times Abram and Abraham has gotten a promise from the Lord and it assures him and it strengthens him and it reveals new things about him and his life and his future each time. So he wants to hear what they have to say. But what's interesting about this text is that whatever it is they have to say, they want to say it to Sarah. I want you to understand this morning, God wants to say something to you. Not just the leaders of the church, not just everybody in the church, not just your, your Christian parents or friends, your Christian uh, teachers or cousins. or who, God has something to say to you. God speaks not just to all of us, he speaks to you. And we need to have ears to hear. He's come to speak, not to Abraham, not to the patriarch, not to the leader, but to his wife, to Sarah. Now, for whatever reason, Sarah's not there. Right? She's not, she, she's, she is, uh, either it's a cultural thing where the women wouldn't eat with the men unless the other wives were there, or it's just that hot and she doesn't want to get out there and get sweaty and she doesn't feel invited. I don't know what it is, but she's not there. Where is she? Well, she is right uh, inside the tent flap 
eavesdropping on this conversation, right? So this is the old school way of picking up the other line and listening in on the phone. She is right behind. She can't be seen, right? But she's right behind the flap of the tent, and she's listening to what these three guys are going to tell her husband. So she's eavesdropping on the conversation. So verse 9, it says, They said to him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in a tent. Now think about this. It's three strangers, as it were, in one sense. Okay, they're like, hey, you got a wife. Her name's Sarah. Right, they know all that. So they probably know where she's at. And Abraham says, well, she's in the tent. They probably know, no, she's not just in the tent. She is right behind the flap of the tent listening. And the reason they ask this question is not for information. It's very likely that the reason they ask this question is to perk up her eavesdropping ears because they know that she is within earshot. And they want her to hear something directly. And this is what it is in verse 10. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door that was behind him. So mission accomplished. The word has gotten to Sarah. Now it's a word that has already been given to Abraham in chapter 17, right? This time next year, the son of promise is coming. This son that I've promised you time and time again, Abraham, it's coming down to the wire. This is going to happen. He's told that to Abraham, but he wants it to get to Sarah's ears in this case. It could be because Abraham hasn't told Sarah for whatever reason, doesn't want to disappoint her, doesn't want to get her hopes up. Um, it could be that Abraham has told Sarah and Sarah just needs to hear it again. Either way, God wants Sarah to hear this directly for herself. Some of you, you need to read the word of God as if God is speaking directly to you. For that is surely his heart and what he is doing. This is for Sarah, Abraham. It's the same promise, but I want her to know it for herself. This time next year, she will be pregnant with a son. God is saying this to sort of calm her heart. The, the, it's, it's, it's been 25 years since they first received this promise in general, that they would be father and mother of a great nation, that they'd have sons who have sons who have sons, and that there'd be a multitude, as much as the stars, as much as the sand, you can't even count it, right? This promise was given back in chapter 12, it was 25 years later, and he's coming to Sarah to say, this time next year, it'll all come to fruition. This is hopefully a great relief for her. This is supposed to uh, bring her uh, some sort of stability, right? This time next year, that means she has a deadline now. She has a date. It is now also falsifiable. Like if it doesn't happen this time next year, then she can stop wondering when it's going to happen. She can know that the promise didn't come true, that maybe she, that this was all made up or from a God who isn't powerful. And she could, I mean, she, the, the idea, is look it's coming this whole contemplating period this whole questioning period this whole what if period is coming to a close god wants sarah to know that your time in the waiting room is coming to an end pick up one more magazine but a year from now the doctor will see you that's the idea it's to give her some hope but what we see in the text is that apparently sarah had lost hope a long, long time ago. Why? Look at verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah 
were old and well stricken in age. Man, King James doesn't hold any punches on that one, does he? That's, a, that's old. Your last birthday punched you in the face. That's what he's saying. They're super old. That's what he's saying. Well stricken in age. It ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. She is anatomically incapable of having a child. So she is actually in disbelief, total disbelief. And, and you have to understand the tension of the promise, the tension of verse 10 and 11, the tension she's hearing this in. You have to get it. It's hard, but you have to try to put yourself in her shoes. Okay, this is not, hey, shoot from the half court line in the last minute of the fourth quarter. That's not what this is. This is the last minute has, has passed it has been years since the fourth quarter. The teams have all gone home. The stadium lights have been shut off. The game is over. And now he comes and says, you're going to have a baby. That's the that you're going to win the game. That's the idea. That's the tension. I'll put it to you this way, just another way for you to think about it. I mean, imagine the economy starts tanking. Your business goes under. You file bankruptcy. You go homeless. For years, you wander around Greenville, and then the Lord shows up and says, your business is going to be successful. That's the tension she's hearing this in. That's the tension in which she receives the promise. She is ridiculously beyond the age of the ability to, to bear children. And God says, you're going to be a mommy. Get the nursery ready. Call the girls from church over. Have a baby shower. Stock up on diapers. I want you to know that all of us will probably face something like this. Not this. This is unique, clearly. That's why it made it in the Bible. Okay, but something to where we will have to believe God long after it looks hopeless. There will be something in your life where you will have to believe for resurrection. Something has died, and only a resurrection can bring it back. Something is gone, and only God can find it. Something is long past, and only God can turn back the clock. There will be something in all of our lives. Every Christian life, I think, will have Sarah's moment to where God is going to promise us, or God is going to, to tell us, God is going to give us some situation in which we're not in the last quarter, at the last minute, at the last second. We're well beyond it, and God says, still, believe me, this that will happen and here's the question how do you think you're going to react in that moment try to think how you'd react if you were Sarah way beyond hope and yet God still makes a promise how would you react well for you only you and God know for Sarah we all get to know because it's written here in the Bible for our edification. We see how Sarah interacts with God's word in the middle of this tension, and it's in this tension that we learn. So this is where the story turns into the sermon, but we see this in Sarah's response. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I'm waxed old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord, that's Abraham, being old also? She laughs. Now notice, she doesn't laugh out loud. This is not an LOL situation. She doesn't come out of the tent, 
yell at these three guys, laugh at these three guys to their face. What's it say? She laughs within herself. She laughs within her heart, within her mind. That means that this laughter is real. This is true. This is really what's gone on in her heart. She does not believe this. And what is this? This is called cynicism. Sarah is cynical. One of the definitions of cynical is to be bitterly or sneeringly distrustful, contemptuous or pessimistic. Here's a question this morning. Are you cynical? Do you tend to be cynical? Are you cynical about anything in particular? And if so, what about? There's a few things we tend to get cynical about. One is ourselves. You could get cynical about you. This is what Sarah's story is in 11 and 12, right? There's some truth going on in what she's saying about herself, verses 11 and 12, right? I'm old, I'm past the age of childbearing, but she's also taking on some of that shame that came with being barren in that culture, and she's believed some of that for herself, that she really is, that there's something to be ashamed of, that she is a failure, that she is incapable. There is some of that not the failure part, but the incapable part. Some of that's true. She's not cap- she can't have a baby now. Some of that's true, but she's also not counting all the things that are true uh, in a good way, right? She's cynical about herself because she's also not thinking about, hey, well, I'm alive. I've received promises from God Almighty. I've seen the miraculous. In chapter 12, she sees the plagues hit Pharaoh. In chapter, I believe it's 14, she sees Abraham with his fellow farming buddies defeat four kings and their armies, right? So she's seen the move of God, and she's not counting all that right now. She's just thinking about all that's wrong with her. Some of you are like this. You abuse yourself. You doubt yourself. You hate yourself. You demean yourself. You are so hard on yourself, You are way harder on yourself than all of us are on you or than God is on you. And you are cynical. You never look at what you are and you always look at what you're not. You always look at what you don't do, never what you do. Always look at your sin, but never your Savior. Listen to me. Jesus Christ died on the cross to wipe away all bad things about you and to impute to you all good things that will last forever. But you never think of that because you're cynical. And you only see yourself in your misery and in your failure, but never your gifting and, your, and, and how cherished you are. Where do you tend to get cynical? Well, here's another place we tend to get cynical is about somebody else. Right? She's cynical about these three guys, whoever they are. One of them being God. Some of you are cynical concerning God. She's cynical about everybody else. She's cynical. She says, Abraham's also old. She's cynical about her husband because she's about 100 and hasn't uh, always been the best husband. Who are you cynical about? We are trained. We are bred in this culture to be cynical about one another. Are we not? Political parties, they got two Two platform points. We're geniuses, they're morons. That's it. Every single time. I've been alive now, 33 years. I've watched some elections. And here's what I gather from every political person I've ever seen on TV. All the parties are all guilty of this. All of them. 
we're awesome, they're morons, we'll build it, they'll destroy it, we're the best, they're the worst. And what does that do for our culture? You meet someone of a different political party and you are cynical about them. They must be a moron looking to destroy me. That's kind of a cynical view. I mean, just FYI, churches have learned from this and now denominations do this. It's insane. I, there are literal denomina- there are sermons in our denominations that have those two points. We're right, they're wrong. And they look down their noses at the brethren. Revival breaks out at the church down the street. It's like, can't be real revival because it's not of our group. They didn't go to my seminary, right? It's like, Jesus saved a thief on the cross. He can save a guy in a church with a sign that's different than ours. If he wants now, I love our denomination and everything, and there's some good in that. But like, look, let's not just get so cynical about everybody. There are some people, you do something wrong, they never let you live it down. Some of you have parents like this. Some of you are parents like this, maybe. You're cynical, even about your own kids. There are people who will never trust you, no matter how trustworthy you are. Some of you have friends like this. Maybe some of you are a friend like this. You just don't trust anybody. Everyone's got to have bad motives. You're cynical about others. Like Sarah is cynical in this moment. Who are you cynical about? You know what else we can get cynical about is our sin. Maybe one of the reasons Sarah laughs is because she doesn't feel like she even deserves this because of what she did with Hagar back in chapter 16 when they tried to basically use Hagar as a surrogate for the promised child, and then they kicked Hagar out of the house till the Lord brought her back. It's a great sin. And maybe that sin's in the back of her heart, in the back of her mind, thinking there's no way God's going to bless me after I've cursed someone else. And we get cynical because of our sin, right? There's no way. We, we see our sin, sins of others. We watch the news, which is really just the sins of the world on display, on the TV screen, and we start thinking, there's no way God's going to bless us. There's no way God is at work. There is no way he's going to redeem all this. There's no way he's going to use me. There's no way he wants me. There's just no way he's going to give me all this good when I've done so much bad. And we get to passages that are like, hey, all things work together for good to those who love God, or God will supply all your need, or a passage like, hey, God can do abundantly more than you ever ask or think. And like Sarah, we get to the promise and we laugh. And we assume this might apply to the clergy, Mother Teresa, the saints, but not me because of my sin. And we're cynical about the promises of God because of our sin. And here's what I want to tell you. Your cynicism feels like safety. That's why cynicism is so tempting. Being cynical feels safe because, hey, if you expect the worst, you can't really be disappointed, right? If you live your life down on the ground, woe is me, then it's hard to be getting your hopes up. I hear you. I see that. But here's what the scriptures will tell us, that as safe as our cynicism feels, it does not actually help us. It hurts us. Cynicism keeps us from faith. 
Cynicism keeps us from following Jesus in faith. Cynicism keeps us from a great joy that really is present, a great promise he really is keeping, great wonder that really is a part of life, all things marvelous that are really happening in the church, the miracles that really do happen. Our cynicism keeps us from others who really do love us. And perhaps today, you are more miserable than warranted because you're cynical. And which is to really, some degree, you're laughing at the word of God. Now, I want to step back and say this. You might be cynical for good reasons. Like, why is Sarah cynical? For good reason. An understandable reason. I mean, Sarah's cynical because of her circumstance, first of all. And it's true, the odds are infinitely stacked against her, and they have been her whole life. So listen, we sympathize and empathize with Sarah. Sarah, she has a, a, a medical condition she cannot help, and she's in a culture that shames her for that. Okay, for you, you might have a condition of some sort you cannot help. You might have been abused and bruised by, by your family, culture, friends, high school, <laughs> middle school. I don't want to get anybody too depressed in here, but yeah, it's a, you might be cynical for good reason. Sarah is cynical for a totally legitimate reason, yet believe it or not, God is still going to call Sarah lovingly out of her cynicism because cynicism is bad for the soul, and he loves Sarah's soul. You were not created for cynicism, but celebration. That's why you were made, for worship and praise and glory and honor to the king, to celebrate and God, he brings us to that celebration. He brings Sarah to that celebration. By chapter 21, he does give her a baby one year later. The promise does come true. The child's name is Isaac, which means laughter. And Sarah herself says, the Lord has brought me laughter because I basically was laughing out of cynicism. And now I laugh out of celebration because of the great promise he kept in his strength. So she's cynical for good reason, but God still wants to pull her out of it with good news. Sarah's cynical for good reason. She's also somewhat cynical for bad reasons. Some of you here, you're cynical for good reasons, and we understand, and we sympathize, and we empathize, and we love you. Okay? Some of you are cynical, and it's not that great of a reason, to be honest. Right? Like, well, I grew up with a lake house, but I never had a beach house. It's like, Cry me a river, right? I got the iPad too. But that, I don't know how, that was probably 30 years ago, whatever. I got the iPad 200, but not the iPad 201. My kids had to go to the Christian school without a water park. And some of you, you're just cynic, you're cynical, but not for any real good reason. You're cynical because you don't get everything you want. You don't get everything you want when you want it. You don't get everything you want how you want it. And, and, and you're not super fun to be around, right? It's, you're, it's hard. I just want to be like, hey, in the words of Bob Marley, every little thing is going to be all right. But not because of Bob Marley or marijuana, just to be clear, but because of a spear that went in and out of our Savior's side. Amen? 
Everything is going to be all right. Some of us are cynics, and it's not real. It's not real. It's not for good reason. And Sarah, her, hers is good reason, but she has a tinge, I would say, uh, because of the text of sin in this, and that she wanted a baby the normal way. And who could blame her? But she wanted a baby in her 20s, not her 120s, right? She wanted a baby that, like with all her friends, not when all her friends are having funerals. She wanted to have a baby when grandma was still alive. She wanted to have a baby the right, the normal way. She wanted it her way. There is a tinge of this to where she is mad at God and angry with God. Now, I'm not going to be hard on Sarah. Far be it from me to, 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 to be hard on her. A lot of the commentators, you get to Sarah, and they're just like, how dare she laugh at the word of God? It's like, put yourself in her shoes for two seconds. Like, it's... She's laughing because it's in, like, imagine someone came up to me and said, a year from now, you're going to be in the NBA. Be like, that's insane. If you wanted me in the NBA, you should have given me some motor skills back when I was five. But that never happened. It's, it, this is what she's going through. This is intense, right? So we don't want to come down hard on Sarah, but there is this sense from the text that she's not 100% off the hook. Like, she is, she is mad at the will of God to some degree, that it's been so long, that she's waited so long. There is some of that, that she is holding her will against God's will, and as understandable as it may be, it still needs corrected. Our sin needs to be repented of as big or as small as it is. And God is going to correct her, but I love this. God is going to correct her very gently. How do you think God responds to cynics? Good news, God responds to cynics gently. If you're here and you're cynical, God does not want to smash you. He was smashed for you on the cross. He doesn't want to crush you. He was crushed for you. He doesn't want to blow you up and get your attention. He was blown up for you. He's gentle now with grace towards you. He's going to be gentle with Sarah. And he's going to be hopeful with Sarah. Here's some good news. You might be cynical this morning towards God, but God is not cynical towards you. Hallelujah. This is great news. God's not cynical with Sarah. She's still going to have the baby. It's still a year from now. It's going to come at the right time as promised. He's going to use her. He's going to help her. He's going to bless her. He's going to keep her. God is not cynical. I love that. I was reading the story the other day of Jesus and uh, Jairus' daughter. I think it's either Jairus or Jairus. I can't really pronounce it. Jairus' daughter is sick, far away. And he's like, Jesus, what can you do? My, my daughter's sick, far away. It's a 12-year-old daughter. And Jesus says, well, let's go, let's go heal her. And so they're on their way to heal her. And as they're on their way to heal her, servants come and say, she's dead. Don't, don't bring Jesus one step further. She's already gone. And Jesus, I love this. He's like, She's sleeping. They're like, no, Jesus, like, I don't know where you went to med school, but she's turning blue. No pulse, no heartbeat. She might be dead. Like, she's dead. Like, dad dead. Jesus is like, let me see her. And he goes into the room with Jairus and a couple of the disciples, and he says, arise and walk. Why? Because he's not cynical. He can do anything. Even past death, he brings resurrection. You may have heard his story. Jesus spent three days in a grave once. And still he wasn't cynical. And he rose again and could defeat sin and Satan and death and hell. 
Because our God is not a cynical God towards us. He hopes the best for us. He knows the best for us. He wants the best for us. He loves us. So for whatever reason we're cynical, whether it's a good reason or a bad reason, we need to be corrected and come to a God not cynical. We need to turn from cynicism to celebration. How do we do that? How do we turn from cynicism to celebration? What's the answer? Well, first, we need to recognize and repent of our cynical thinking. That's the reason for this whole story. I have looked at this story every which way. I'm like, why is there all this detail? It's just a lot of, for the first eight verses, there's a lot of detail, right? Like, oh, bread, meat, it was hot. Like, it's just a lot of detail. It's an interesting story. And what it's doing is it's building up this contrast between Abraham, who's eager to hear, and Sarah, who is cynical to hear. And it's doing this for Sarah and for us to look in on Sarah's story. It's doing this to highlight her cynicism so she can see it and repent of it. We need to see it for what it is and repent of it. Look at verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, wherefore did Sarah laugh? Verse 15, then Sarah denied it. I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, no, you did laugh. What's going on here? This is kind of a funny conversation between God and Sarah. I mean, it's kind of a funny moment, to be honest with you, in a sense, right? She's behind the tent flap. She doesn't think they can see her or hear her. She doesn't even laugh audibly. She laughs within herself, the Bible says. And this, this one of these three mysterious men outside the tent flap says she's going to have a baby this time next year, right? In her mind, not even out loud. Not, she's like, yeah, right. And then he's like, why does she laugh? And then out from behind the tent flap, she's like, oh, I didn't laugh. He's like, yeah, you did. Like, how funny. I was just like, oh, they can't see me. They don't, they know my thoughts. And this is a moment for her to get clear on the fact that she's cynical. She needs to recognize this, repent of this, right? We can act in front of the church or the small group or Facebook, we can act like we're not cynical. God wants us to get clear on where we are indeed cynical because we are cynical when it comes to something or someone. And we need to recognize it for what it is. See, some of you, you don't recognize your cynicism because you don't call it cynicism. We like to dress it up. You know what we call it? We call it being a realist. Here's how you know you're talking to a cynic. They call themselves a realist. That's a pessimist, not a realist, trust me. Because they never focus on the good that really is real. Did you know it's reality that Jesus Christ knows how many hairs are on your head? Did you know that's realism and reality? Did you know it is realism and reality that upon faith, the Holy Spirit fills you and gives you spiritual gifts to serve the body in a way only you can Did you know that it is reality that you're going to live forever? Did you know it is realism that Jesus is going to return and establish a new heaven and a new earth? This is realism. But you don't talk about that because you're not a realist. You are cynical and you need to repent. We like to dress this up theologically, doctrinally. We call this cessationism. Say, what's cessationism? It's a belief that the spiritual gifts, the miraculous spiritual gifts have ceased. That like we as people of God no longer need to do miracles. 
Okay, cessationism. Guess who cessationism doesn't apply to? God! Now, a cessationist can say that to you and me, but to God? God's still doing miracles. Like, you may not be able to heal the guy. I, like, I've never had a Peter moment where the blind guy sees because I stopped by. That's just not happened to me, okay? Just letting you know, I've never been out in Poe Mill. Paralytic guy starts running around because I was like, go ahead. I just, that's not been my story, okay? But guess who could do it? Still in the, to this day, God, right? Cessationism, just so we know, okay? We're, we're sort of that way as a church, but let me just tell you, cessationism does not apply to God, right? Amen? If God didn't do the impossible, you wouldn't even be saved. Because Jesus says it's a mystery. Remember, Jesus said, when it comes to, he goes, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? And guess who the rich man is? Just spoiler alert, it's us. We're the rich man, okay? If you're here, you're in America, you got a phone connection, a house, you've eaten this week, you're the rich man, okay? Hey, it's impossible, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? It's like a camel entering through an eye of a needle. And his disciples go, then how can anybody be saved? And Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. Don't apply, your theology, don't apply all this to God. God does what he wants. If God did do the impossible, you wouldn't be sitting here. Ten, six years ago, there were 10 people in our church. Six years ago, there were 10 people in this room. And we had a preacher, a visiting preacher who came, and honestly, he was kind of cynical. And then right in front of us, he got up here, right where I was, he said, your church is dead. And the people of this church were not cynical. And they believed, and they were going to keep working no matter what. And they were going to keep worshiping no matter what. And they knew that God had a plan. And look, we're not dead. Why? Because God does the impossible. He brings dead things back to life. He sets captives free. He restores sight to the blind. He is the God of wonders and majesty, Alpha, Omega, beginning and end, first and the last, and bright and morning star, everlasting, Father, God, and King, faithful witness and habitation of justice, the Father of glory, light, and mercy, King of kings, Lord of lords, Redeemer, Hightower. He is the precious lion and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who was and is and is to come, the water of life, the bread of life, the living uh, uh, water, the light of the world, the way, the truth, the life, the door, and the good shepherd. He, he can guide the sheep wherever we need to go. This is the idea? So don't get all doctrinal and theological when you're really cynical and you've lost faith. You need to repent. He said, hey, we just need to call it what it is. It's cynicism. And we need to repent of our cynicism and celebrate a God who is all-powerful. Look at God's question for Sarah. I mean, this is beautiful. This is the question of questions. This is the biggest, baddest question. This, is the, this question needs to be tattooed on our, our, our foreheads. Not really. Don't go do that. That'd be weird. But like, hey, what's up? I'm from Griggs. What well, we know. <laughs> um, you know, uh, this tattoo, uh, not tattoo, sorry, verse, question, this, this question, I mean, just stick it on a post-it note next to, like on the dashboard. This is the question. He says in verse 14, oh, I love this. I'm getting excited. My coffee's kicking in. Look at verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What a question. 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? God's question for Sarah is his question for us in our cynicism. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This question has a beautiful double meaning, man. I love it. This is where the English sort of fails us. It does mean, is anything too hard for the Lord, as in difficult? But in the Hebrew, there is this element that is mis- that's there that's missing in the English, and it has to do with goodness. And really, the idea would be not just, is anything too difficult for the Lord? That's part of it. But is anything too marvelous or good for God to do? In other words, is God really ever too good to be true? And the good news is, this is a rhetorical question, and God's implication is, no, nothing is beyond my goodness, nothing is beyond my power. Here's the answer to our cynicism, is truly having faith in, believing in a God who is all good and all powerful. He is both. And that helps us celebrate. I mean, the goodness and the power of God, where do we see it more? than we do in the gospel, which is really the story this story points to, right? Remember where we've been in the story of Genesis. We'll do a quick recap and finish with this. God creates the majesty of the heavens. God creates the firmament. He creates earth. And in the middle of all this, he places two human beings, image bearers of his own. They sin against him at the temptation of the serpent. But quickly, he promises that eventually the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that there would be a son who eventually comes and he defeats the temptation of the serpent and he reverses the curse of the serpent and the work of the serpent. And the story goes on and it shows us the family line that this son would come through, the family line of Abraham and Sarah, which are the most unlikely people on the planet because they're Babylonian pagans. But yet they hear from God, they believe God, they move to the promised land of Canaan where Jesus would eventually come from and through them is gonna come this serpent crushing king from this nation that they're going to create in their late 90s, right? They're going to have these kids, this son, Isaac, who brings about Jacob, who brings about eventually Moses and eventually David and then eventually Jesus. This is gonna come from two Babylonian 90-year-olds. Why? I think it's just so God could ask this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Though Abraham and Sarah are 90, they have a son named Isaac. The bloodline continues until we get to King Jesus who comes on the scene. And by the way, he's another miracle baby, right? Uh, Can a virgin conceive and bear a son? Is anything too hard for the Lord? (laughs) And he has Jesus, she has Jesus who grows up in a hick town called Nazareth, homeless guy, by the age of 30, having been a carpenter, goes out in his ministry and he defeats the temptation of the serpent. Three times the serpent comes to him like our first father, Adam, with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and all three times Jesus thwarts the temptation of the devil Because is anything too hard for the Lord? Jesus then goes on to heal the blind and to feed the hungry and to love the poor and the sinners and the outcasts. He then goes to the cross and in his death, he swallows the curse for us, dying so that we do not have to die for our sins. He rises again that we might rise again and live forever Is it possible that one day you and I will eat from the tree of life that we've been banished from? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
until we go to the tree of life to live with him physically in the new heavens and new earth, we live spiritually with Jesus. Now, he fills us with the power of the Holy Spirit. He unites us together as a church. And as a church, we're the body of Christ and we continue the crushing of the serpent together. He uses people like you and people like me and people like Sarah to be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. Can God really use people like you like me, churches like Griggs, is anything too hard for the Lord? Here's the good news today. We serve a God who is all good and all powerful, and thus, as good as your reason is to be cynical, there is a much greater reason for you to celebrate. For Sarah, the reason to celebrate was a child was coming, For us, the reason to celebrate is a child has come. He grew up, defeated Satan's sin and death. Through his sinless life, his baptism, his transfiguration, his burial, his ascension, and his kingship, all things are possible to him who believes. How can we be cynical as we look at the gospel? Is anything too hard for Jesus? Now, he may not give us everything we want exactly when, he want, when we want it, but he him, has given us himself. And so the scriptures tell us in Romans 8, 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how then shall he not also with him give us, freely give us all things? Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Philippians 4, 19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3, 20, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. These are the promises of God for you. So repent of your cynical laughter at these promises and repeat these promises and breathe in these promises and eat and sleep these promises and celebrate the all-good and the all-powerful God Almighty. And with every breath in your cynicism, ask this question, is anything too hard for the Lord? TC is about to come and the musicians are about to come and TC is gonna lead us in a time of communion. And he'll tell us all that we need to know about communion. But one thing to remember is we examine ourselves and repent and confess our sin and and think about and focus on the glory of God. And today as we examine ourselves, I want you to ask God to highlight for you where you are cynical and repent of that cynicism. And I want you to look at the, 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 the body and the blood of Jesus And I want you to ask yourself this question. I want you to ask your cynicism this question. Is anything too hard for the one who removed sin, who removed the serpent? And whether you feel like it or don't feel like it, I want you to confess that through him, there's a lot to celebrate for nothing is too hard for the Lord. So I'll pray. Then TC will give us some instruction and guide us for a time of communion, and then we'll worship together. Jesus, thank you so much that nothing is too hard for you. Thank you so much that you have 
defeated the serpent. Thank you so much that you gave Sarah a son named Isaac that we could all laugh about how good you are. We could all laugh with celebration at how impossible things to us are super easy to you and, and, and no sweat for you. And, and thank you, Lord, that Sarah's child eventually led to Mary's child and that we might all become the children of God. Thank you that you do miracles and thank you that you do the impossible and that really, as much as the world and our sin and the devil wants us to be cynical, we have a lot to celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Greeks family, um, it's, it's my pleasure to invite you now to partake in the Lord's Supper and communion um, here together as a family. Um, and if you're new here, um, or maybe if you're not that familiar with uh, communion and what it is and how we do it and why it, we do it, um, I have the privilege just to refresh us um, and also to read um, from Paul, what he said the Lord's communion is and what it's for. Uh, if you'd open your Bibles or you can just listen along, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, um, verse 23. 